Hey, this is Rob Harder with Making Your World Better, a nonprofit leadership show where real stories from real people who are coming up with real solutions to solve society's biggest challenges. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? How do people fundraise in an economy that is constantly in flux? How do you relate to board members in a way that inspires them to make a difference? What are the best practices that separate effective nonprofits from others? It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, Making Your World Better. Have you ever, ever wondered why certain nonprofits break through to that next level of effectiveness while other nonprofits shrink back? Well, the guest on today's show is actually coming out with a new book called Startup Success, How the Best Nonprofits Launch, Scale Up, and Make a Difference. And on this show, you're going to hear some principles that she's going to give us a sneak preview of this book that talk about how certain nonprofits really break through to that next level of effectiveness. So the guest on today's show is Kathleen Kelly Janis. She is an award-winning social entrepreneur, author, and lecturer at Stanford University. She's also an expert on philanthropy, millennial engagement, and scaling early-stage organizations. Her work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Huffington Post, Stanford Social Innovation Review, TechCrunch, and the San Francisco Chronicle. She's actually also the co-founder of Spark, the largest network of millennial donors in the world. Based in the heart of Silicon Valley, her forthcoming book, Social Startup Success, features best practices for early-stage nonprofit organizations based on a five-year research project interviewing hundreds of top-performing social entrepreneurs. I think you're going to really enjoy today's show. Thanks for listening. Well, we have a very special guest today on our podcast. It's Kathleen Kelly Janis. Um, she is an award-winning social entrepreneur, author, and lecturer at Stanford University. And we're really glad you're calling in today, Kathleen. Thank you so much for taking time to be on the show. Thanks for having me, Rob. Okay, so you have a new book coming out soon called Startup Success, How the Best Nonprofits Launch, Scale Up, and Make a Difference. This book seeks to give insights and a guide for how organizations can achieve breakthrough impact in the nonprofit sector. So why did you set out to research this topic in the first place? And could you tell us a little bit about the process you used in your research? Well, good question, because it's been quite a process. Uh, this book has been five years in the making. And I mean, Social Startup Success was really inspired by my upbringing in a small town by parents who always made me aware of the haves and have-nots. And so, of course, like many Irish Catholic families, we were volunteering in soup kitchens and uh, health clinics for low-income workers on the weekends. But our volunteer efforts didn't stop there. My parents always made me really aware of the fact that we couldn't just focus on the beneficiaries or the, the neediest populations, that actually we had to also support the nonprofits themselves to make sure that they had the resources that they needed to, uh, in order to grow and to not only survive, but thrive. And so I saw my parents as they worked very hard and sat on dozens of boards and hosted fundraisers and worked to make sure that those nonprofits had the resources that they needed. And so when I started my own career as a lawyer in San Francisco and started a small nonprofit myself called Spark, which engages millennials in uh, gender equality issues, I learned 
how hard it is to run a nonprofit and um, and how hard it is to raise the capital you need to make the impact that you want to see. And so um, wearing my research cap at Stanford, uh, when I started teaching social entrepreneurship, I became really curious to um, to try and understand, well, what is it that the organizations that are thriving or that are, what are they doing that is helping them to succeed? Um, I saw all these social startups around me in the Silicon Valley, like Kiva, which was a crowdfunding platform to help create lending to uh, micro enterprises around the world, uh, raised $11 million overnight after they were on the Oprah Winfrey show. And so what is that secret sauce that they had that was working for them? And what were the foundations that they were laying for their success? And so I started by surveying over 250 organizations around the country uh, to try and understand various strategies that they were using. And then I went out and I interviewed a 100 social entrepreneurs, their leadership teams, their beneficiaries, their funders, and asked them really one question, which is, what is the key to your success? And the results were absolutely fascinating and um, and will be featured in the book, which comes out in January. Well, first of all, I really appreciate the fact that your parents had such an impact on you. Uh, sounds like you had wonderful parents. Uh, what a great example for you. Now, back to the book. Um, what were your key findings? And I, we'd like to get a little sneak preview. I know it's coming out soon. But what surprised you the most as an expert on these nonprofits and how they really broke through to that next level of effectiveness? Yeah, so in the book, I present five key strategies that I heard over and over again were responsible for the breakout growth of the most successful social startups. Each one of the organizations that I that scaled most successfully employed many or all of these practices. And so first, they focused on testing ideas. And this was really important because they talk about this almost like dark period before they went out and started the organization where they piloted and they tested and they and they um, failed before they succeeded. And this is really important because it sets into motion a culture of innovation that helps them constantly be improving their model as they grow. The second strategy is measuring impact. The organizations that tended to scale more quickly tended to see that they began measuring their impact very early on, in fact, from the start of the organization. And that's important because, as we all know, funders are looking for data and to show that you are actually having an impact in your work. And so the organizations that are able to provide that data are the organizations that are getting funded. Um, but more important, it's not just about proving what you're doing is working. It's also about improving. And so the organizations that measure well are able to then look at their work with a really critical and um, objective eye to see what's actually working and what's not and tweak their model as they grow. The third strategy is funding experimentation using a combination of for-profit revenue generating sources as well as nonprofit philanthropic capital. The fourth strategy is engaging in collective leadership so this is important because, and, and actually kind of surprising, um, as, as 
U.S., it's surprising because when we think about social entrepreneurship or nonprofit leaders, so often we think about putting one leader on a pedestal for their work. And yet we all know that social change happens with teams and that behind every successful leader, there's a whole team that's making them successful. And so this actually plays out in the research and shows that the organizations that scale more quickly rely on their teams and lift their teams up as part of the process, whether it's their senior leadership teams, the organizations that scale more quickly tend to say they have really um, strong senior leadership and hired senior leaders early, and this allows them the time that they need to go out and focus on fundraising and strategy. Um, It's their boards and having a really highly engaged board of directors, and it's their staff and reversing the pyramid and putting their staff on top as opposed to them and figuring out how to engage them in a meaningful way. And then the final strategy that they employed is that they use storytelling in very purposeful ways to get people engaged in their mission. And it's not only about practicing and making sure that the leader is a good storyteller. It's also about engaging the rest of your team and making sure that your board and your staff also know how to tell the stories of your impact because everyone on your team can be a brand ambassador for the work. And so you have to provide opportunities for them to get the practice as well. So those are the five strategies. Very interesting. And, and your book is seeking really to become a social entrepreneur's essential playbook. And then I put that in quotes. What kind of data and information are nonprofit leaders and social entrepreneurs going to discover in your book that will really help them grow their organizations? Well, there's a lot of um, data that I collected that I think will be really illuminating for folks. And there's also um, a lot of really tangible tools that nonprofits can use to strengthen their organizations. And I illuminate it with uh, with the stories of all of the organizations that I um, interviewed for the book. So let me give you an example um, of measuring impact. We all know that it's important for nonprofits to measure the impact of their work. And in fact, the research shows that 75% of nonprofits say that they collect data about their programs. But that same study showed that actually only 6% of nonprofit leaders really feel like they are making good use of their data. So in the book, I give some practical examples of how organizations have done a good job of measuring the impact of their work. For example, showing how organizations can develop a theory of change that shows their unique solution to the problem they're trying to solve, or how to distinguish between outputs or vanity metrics that really just show how many people are participating in your programs versus outcomes or the evidence of how your programs are actually improving people's lives. I also talk about how to develop key performance indicators to show whether you're making progress toward your goals and how to use your data to tell a story. I find that nonprofits are really struggling to reinvent the wheel on these key strategies for success. And I think impact measurement is a really great example because most nonprofit leaders don't go into this work because they're data scientists and they're really 
excited about collecting data and using it to show how they're making an impact. They go into it because they care about the cause. And so uh, most nonprofit leaders who start organizations have to learn this stuff from scratch. And in fact, there are really tested models for success that organizations can use. And in the book, I, I try and lay those out so that people can quickly get up to speed and get to the important work of their programming, which is really where they should be spending their time. Okay, it's obvious that you've done a lot of research. And you know what's interesting is almost everybody on this show has talked about fundraising and the difficulty and the challenge of fundraising. So in from your research, what are the national and perhaps even global trends in terms of new funding experimentation and how effective nonprofits can solve the fundraising conundrum? You are absolutely right, Rob. In fact, 81% of the organizations that I surveyed said that their biggest challenge that their organization is facing is access to capital. Um, and this is so interesting because, again, nonprofit leaders go into this work because they care about the causes that they're working on, whether it's healthcare or education or criminal justice issues. And then all of a sudden, they realize that, surprise, 99% of their time, if they're an executive director, is going to be spent not on those causes, but on raising capital to keep the organization afloat. And so, what I always tell my students at Stanford is that you care about nonprofit causes, you have to care about fundraising because that's what's going to give you the resources that you need to solve the massive social problems that we're all facing today. I'm just going to clear my throat quickly. <clears throat> you bet. <clears throat> okay, so how does an organization get good at fundraising? And the research shows that, as I said earlier, that it's really all about testing different strategies. There's this really interesting research out of the Bridgeman Group in Boston, William Foster, who wrote this article that many of your listeners may know called The Ten Funding Models. Um, it was a well-distributed um, article out of the Stanford Social Innovation Review. And in that article, he talks about how there's 140 nonprofits that have scaled to $50 million in revenue uh, or more that were started after 1970. And he researches these organizations that have scaled to $50 million and, and finds that actually they each rely on one natural match funder. So, for example, the Sierra Club primarily relies on its members in order to keep its organization funded. But he also looks at organizations in the earlier stages and finds that there's this kind of U-shaped curve, if you can imagine. So in the very early stages of an organization, say around zero to $500,000 in revenue, they might rely on just one source of funding to get their organization off the ground, maybe a friends and family round of funding or maybe a seed grant from an organization like Echoing Green. And then after that time, the U-curve starts to go down, and there's a lot of testing that happens up until about $3 million in revenue. And that's the phase where an organization will have 
many, many, many different sources of income because that's the time when they're testing to figure out what's going to be their natural match. And then the natural match happens, starts to happen around $3 million in revenue through $5 million and beyond. And so this is one interesting conclusion um, that Jessamine Rodriguez, the founder of Hot Bread Kitchen, reached when she was testing out all these different sources of income is that while initially she had thought that she would be at about 100% sustainability on earned income, that actually philanthropic dollars were really key to be able to provide high-quality programs to her participants. So, yeah, she could cut corners and figure out how to make herself 100% sustainable, but that wouldn't allow for – really extra aspects of the program that would make it better for participants, such as providing childcare for the women who took the classes or maybe making the program go longer than it was profitable. So by testing earned income, it's also really important to get realistic about what you can and you can't fund through revenue generation. And that's where philanthropic capital is also really critical to nonprofit success, whether it's individuals um, or foundation donors. Okay, so from what you found, is fundraising fundamentally changing for nonprofits today? Uh, perhaps maybe because of the social forces in our world or and certainly the impact of social media. In short, what's the future of fundraising for nonprofits based on your research? I think that fundraising is changing fundamentally for nonprofits today for a variety of reasons. I mean, I think some of the obvious ones are that we have a changing political climate and that changes the level of government funding that's available for social issues. Um, but I think it's also changing in a very exciting way because there's just so many different ways that you can raise money as an organization. When we think back, you know, even 20 years to a classic nonprofit fundraiser, we all envision this kind of rubber chicken dinner where the speakers are long and boring and being interrupted by people's forks clinking on their plates. And Nowadays, technology is allowing for new platforms to raise money through crowdfunding, and organizations are being super creative about raising money through earned income, like we saw in Hot Bread Kitchen. Um, and there's also all of this focus on getting champions and like-minded individuals to help raise money for you. I think we all think about fundraising as this kind of solitary effort that a nonprofit has to has to embark on. And what I learned in my research is that the best organizations find other people to raise money for them. Uh, one example is uh, a, an organization that many may have heard of called Room to Read. It was founded by a guy named John Wood, who was a former Microsoft executive and had just returned from a life-changing trekking expedition to the Himalayas. And he discovered there that there was a school with 450 children in it that only had a handful of books in their library. And so he got all of his family and friends to build a library for that school, and it was a huge success. So he and his co-founder, Aaron Ganju, built an entire fundraising model around this idea. They packaged donations so that donors would know exactly where their money was going. And the donors cared so much that they wanted to do more. So the organization set up chapters across the country and around the world to engage their supporters. And each year they bring together all of these volunteer fundraisers to an annual leadership conference in San Francisco where Room to Read helps them come up with a fundraising plan and engages them with motivating stories about the organization's impact. And this model has been so successful that Room to Read now has 
chapters in 16 countries and over 40 cities, and that helps them raise 25% of the organization's $50 million annual budget, which this is really, really breathtaking because and liberating, I think, for nonprofits to realize that they don't have to be alone in fundraising, that especially as millennials um, and, and, and new generations get more and more excited about making the world a better place and want to be involved, it's every nonprofit's job to figure out how to get them involved in their cause in particular. And uh, I think that's really exciting because it's going to unleash so much potential to solve the most pressing social problems that we face today. Well, I'm sure as you looked at a lot of nonprofits, just as you just shared with one, this latest example, you ran across some great nonprofits. Um, one of the things we talk about in the show is how people are making their world better. Uh, give us a couple examples of other nonprofits you ran across that really are making a difference. So many. This is like asking me to choose my favorite child. <laughs> After interviewing 100. I realize this is a loaded question. I know. I understand. Yeah. Um, well, let me give you just one. I, what I think nonprofits are doing that is so important is to fill a gap where government is not doing enough to serve the needs of the most vulnerable populations in our society. Um, one organization that I feature in the book is Rob Gittin from At the Crossroads. And Rob runs a homeless organization focused particularly on the youth population in San Francisco. And he really fell into the work because he was someone in college who liked to sleep in. And so he stumbled into this class because it met afternoon and, and met his criteria for the time frame he wanted to take his college classes. And it was called Homelessness in America, and he started working with these homeless youth and decided that he wanted to dedicate his life to this cause. So he founded At the Crossroads and does street outreach with his team in the Tenderloin and Mission Districts of San Francisco, and he's working with these kids who have fallen through the cracks of society. They've been disappointed at every turn, whether it's by the foster care system or the homelessness initiatives even. These are kids who might have to meet with Rob and his team or encounter them over a hundred times before they have the trust to actually sit down and talk about what they need. And so, yes, there's a lot of homelessness initiatives in San Francisco, and there are people who are being served well by those government services, but the government doesn't have time to interact with kids a hundred times before they bring them into their offices. And so, this is where the passion and the commitment of nonprofit leaders is just so critical to making sure that we are reaching the most vulnerable populations in our society. And I think Rob's work is emblematic of so many incredible nonprofits that are making that difference in our communities and around the world. Now, we've talked a lot about storytelling on the show. Um, you mentioned this in your book. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the, how storytelling with purpose is the most effective way of telling your nonprofit story. Well, the most important strategy nonprofits can use to perfect their story is practice. I think we all have 
this idea when we hear a great TED talk or a good political speech that people are just such naturals. But in fact, I learned in my research that the best organizations and the best nonprofit leaders put so much time into practicing their speeches and their messaging, and and that's really what gets them to a place where they are effective storytellers for their organizations. I'll give you an example. My friend Nadine Burkharis, who runs the Center for Youth Wellness in San Francisco, which focuses on toxic stress and adverse childhood experiences um, in, in the Bayview District of San Francisco, gave a TED Talk that now has millions of views and has been really instrumental in pushing forward her work. She talks about how public speaking is her exercise, that she studies people like Martin Luther King and other really important orators to try and understand, well, what are they doing? What are their what are their gestures? What are their intonations that are really making an impact in their speech? And she, when when she did that TED Talk, wrote it over the course of six months and practiced it so many times that she said that her husband practically could have given the speech up there for her because he had heard it so many times. And so I think we can't underestimate the importance of really putting the time in because social movements are born by stories and that's what's really going to draw people into your organization and raise money and help raise awareness and um and it's not as i said only about getting your executive director perfected in their storytelling it's also about your staff and your board and your beneficiaries i have been on nonprofit boards where we do elevator pitch practicing um, at the board level. And that's really important because boards are ambassadors for the organization. I heard a lot of organizations that I interviewed who do storytelling practices once a week uh, in their staff meetings. So at DREV, for example, which focuses on health products for uh, low-income people around the world, they do TED Talk Tuesdays where they study TED Talks and see what what is working and how they can incorporate those ideas into their storytelling. Uh, IDEO.org, an organization that uses innovation to help nonprofits scale their work, has a Russian roulette style <laughs> storytelling practice where they they spin the wheel and whoever whoever's name it lands on is responsible for telling a story on the spot about their work. Well, good. And now think about the principles in your outlining in your book. What do you think are the long-term impacts for social entrepreneurs and nonprofit leaders if they're able to follow the principles outlined in your book? Well, my hope is that the long-term impact of social startup success is that it will have an equalizing force in helping organizations prepare for scale and to be more efficient in their work. We all know that there is an enormous amount of funding being plowed into organizations on the coasts and major cities, but so many civil society organizations are in the middle parts of the country or organizations that are being led by community-based leaders who may not have an Ivy League resume. Um, and so they're all doing really important work, but maybe having a hard time getting traction or building their organizations because they might not have established some of these basic strategies that they need uh, for growth. And so 
social startup success provides these nonprofit leaders with the tools that they too can grow their impact and and make a difference. That's wonderful. And and again, my guest today has been Kathleen Kelly Janis. She's award-winning social entrepreneur, author, and lecturer at Stanford University. She's also an expert on philanthropy, millennial engagement, and scaling early stage organizations. Her work has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Huffington Post, Stanford Social Innovation Review, TechCrunch, and the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, Kathleen, if people are listening to this podcast and they want to find more about your book that's coming out in January and more about you a little bit, where would you send them? Do you have a website, a Facebook page? Where would people get in touch with you? Absolutely. People can find out more about my book at KathleenJanus.com. That's J-A-N-U-S. And, of course, anyone is welcome to reach out to me through email, Kathleen at KathleenJanis.com. I'd love to hear from you. Well, great. Well, we're very excited about this book coming out. I can just tell from you just giving us a sneak preview today, there are a lot of great principles in this book. And I encourage my listeners to get ready to put that on Amazon.com as an upcoming book to purchase um, or go to her website, find out a little bit more information. Again, Kathleen, thanks so much for taking time to be on the show today. Thanks, Rob. It's been a pleasure. I wanted to let you know that we are on iTunes. If you are wondering how to find out where we are, check us out on iTunes by typing Nonprofit Leadership Podcast or Rob Harder, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help us expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as we can. You can also go online to listen to this podcast, either nonprofitleadershippodcast.org or my website, robharder.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better.